I next met with Dr. Manesh Mehta, who reviewed with me recent developments in the use of radiation therapy in gliomas, and he began our conversation by presenting several cases from his practice, beginning with a young man with GBM. This is a 41-year-old gentleman who was a restaurant owner in very good health otherwise, with a young family and in great shape. He presented with sudden-onset visual field deficits and was evaluated in the emergency room with an MR imaging study, and the study found a left occipital-enhancing mass with significant edema, and this particular mass was causing quite a bit of compression and pressure in the brain. He was therefore taken to surgery and had a gross total resection of the enhancing component of what was clearly a space-occupying lesion, a mass lesion. On histopathology, it turned out to be a malignant grade 4 glioblastoma. Obviously, this is a young man, 41 years old, and the question at that point in time was whether we could do something more than just routine therapy for this patient. We happened to have a clinical protocol open at our institution at that time, which combined a radiosensitizer and radiation therapy. This patient was seen in 2002. This was prior to the routine use and availability of timozolomide. So he was not treated with combination timozolomide and radiation, which is the current standard for glioblastoma, but was treated with this radiosensitizer and with external beam radiotherapy. The interesting thing about the protocol was that the protocol required a mid-treatment MR imaging study to be performed in order to reevaluate whether the field design needed to be changed. This was an interesting sub-aim within the protocol. And he was one of the patients on the study who actually had a significant change midstream in the protocol, which suggested that this tumor was responsive or at least responding to the radiation and the radiosensitizer. After completion of his therapy, he did well for a period of approximately 12 to 14 months, which is typically the time frame for young patients to do well after therapy with this disease, and then presented with what appeared very clearly on imaging studies to be recurrence. He had new enhancement, significant increase in edema, swelling in his brain, and symptoms coinciding with this, symptoms of increased intracranial pressure. He was put on steroids, his symptoms resolved, and obviously he was taken back to surgery. And at the time of surgery, a resection was performed. And intriguingly, the resection showed predominantly necrotic tissue with very little viable tumor in the midst of this tumor. So clearly this raised the concern and the issue that perhaps we were dealing with what would then have been known as radiation necrosis. And the concern was that because he was treated with radiation therapy and a radiosensitizer, this was probably becoming necrotic. The patient actually had more than one episode of this particular clinical presentation. He ended up, in fact, having three such episodes altogether and underwent resections three times. And all three times, he was in fact found to have necrotic debris and predominantly dead or dying tumor. What this illustrates is clearly the fact that we can have patients that receive a therapy, especially an aggressive therapy, and subsequent imaging studies give us an appearance of tumor progression. But at histopathology, this is not always confirmed to be tumor progression. Sometimes turns out to be necrotic tissue. The reason this phenomenon is important is now with the advent of timozolomide and radiation therapy, we are seeing an increasing proportion of patients developing this and developing it earlier than the typical history of radiation necrosis, which is to occur at 12, 18, 24 months. This phenomenon is now referred to as pseudoprogression 
because it makes one believe that there's progression on radiographic images, but in histopathology, there's no convincing evidence for this. So this phenomenon of pseudoprogression is clinically very relevant. Clearly, patients are undergoing maintenance therapy today after completing concurrent chemotherapy and radiation therapy. If they're labeled as having progression, when in reality they may be having pseudoprogression, their therapy is stopped. And what this implies is that an effective therapy is being withdrawn from the patient because the patient, in fact, has pseudoprogression and not real progression. So for the practicing clinician, this is a key issue. When one sees a patient after therapy, especially in today's day and age with combined modality therapy, early on with radiographic changes, and especially if those changes are associated with few clinical symptoms and no obvious convincing evidence of distant spread of disease, be cognizant of the possibility of pseudoprogression. It's not easy to make a diagnosis of pseudoprogression with routine imaging. One can do MR imaging, but MR imaging very much looks like tumor and tumor progression rather than pseudoprogression. There's no distinctive signature of pseudoprogression on MR imaging. Even PET imaging has not successfully resolved the difference between pseudoprogression and progression all the time. And often it boils down to a strategy and a practice of waiting and watching carefully. In other words, sometimes we will continue their maintenance timazolomide and bring them back a month or so later and repeat the imaging study and evaluate the patients. And in many cases, symptoms improve and things get better. So this patient actually very clearly illustrates this concept of pseudoprogression, which the practicing clinician needs to be very aware of because it can influence how subsequent therapies are managed. What finally happened with this patient? So after three episodes of pseudoprogression, he presented with a fourth such episode. And obviously, having seen this three times, we were quite convinced that we were seeing pseudoprogression one more time. However, because he was symptomatic, he underwent his fourth craniotomy at that time. And at that time, he clearly had viable disease, which was new and different from his previous biopsies. And at that time, this was a focal area and a focal lesion. So he was treated with brachytherapy. Brachytherapy generally applies to the delivery of radioactive seeds in and around a tumor bed so that very focal radiation can be delivered in this context. In his case, the brachytherapy was delivered using a balloon device where a balloon is placed intraoperatively and is subsequently filled with a liquid that contains a radioactive colloidal isotope which delivers radiation to the surgical cavity. He did well for a period of about 18 months with this therapy and then had genuine recurrence which was then treated with temozolomide. He did well with that too for a period of more than a year and a half and subsequently relapsed. And since he was having relatively long periods of time in terms of relapse between therapies, he was placed on an experimental protocol. After progressing on that, he was retreated with repeat radiotherapy. He is currently seven years out, actually eight years out from original diagnosis and clinically stable. His imaging studies look terrible in the sense that we see significant areas of enhancement as well as edema in the area where he has had multiple resections and at least three different courses of radiation as well as multiple systemic therapies. But clinically, he is stable, he's not deteriorating, and he's eight years out from original diagnosis. So we are cautiously optimistic with this patient that he might be one of those few rare individuals with this terrible disease glioblastoma that he has become a long-term survivor.
Any hints that we have right now to pick these patients out? I saw your name on a paper looking at genomic predictors, which of course is being looked at in almost every cancer. Anything we have right now that kind of pick a patient like this out? That's actually a very good question because obviously the world of medicine is moving towards personalized medicine using genomic markers. And although we all talk about it, there are really few genomic markers that we can use robustly in clinical practice. In glioblastoma, there is obviously a very commonly utilized marker, not necessarily a genomic marker, but more an epigenetic marker. And this particular marker is MGMT, the status of the MGMT enzyme. Now, historically, we have done this because we know that patients that have methylation or silencing of the MGMT gene will become good responders to combination timozolomide and radiation. But it turns out that some preliminary data suggest that it may be these very same patients who are likely to get the maximum benefit from timozolomide, who might also be more likely to develop pseudoprogression than patients who do not have methylation of the MGMT gene. So it's quite possible that the MGMT gene potentially predicts for good response to timozolomide and radiation and possibly a robust reactive response which manifests as pseudoprogression. Is pseudoprogression predictive of a better outcome? And intriguingly, again, Some small retrospective studies suggest that that's in fact the case. There is a paper that was published in the JCO from an Italian group that looked at this particular question. And they looked at patients that had clearly established pseudoprogression with histopathologic confirmation versus those who did not. And the ones that had pseudoprogression indeed went on to have superior survival. What's the thinking right now in terms of what's going on pathophysiologically with pseudoprogression? Is it some variation of radiation necrosis or what's going on? So we don't quite know the mechanism. We haven't quite elucidated the mechanism fully, but there are probably two or three components to what's going on. We know that there are significant changes in terms of enhancement on MR imaging, which implies that the blood vessels in the area are becoming leaky and allowing the contrast to leak through. So there has to be a vascular component to this damage. The vascular component could very well be a consequence of radiation destabilizing an already unstable vasculature, which is the hallmark of this tumor. On top of that, it's possible that the combination of timozolomide and radiation might be causing a brisker and a more robust response of the vasculature in terms of the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. We also know that these patients respond to steroids, and they respond rather quickly to steroids, which implies that perhaps the stabilization of the blood-brain barrier, or perhaps if there's an inflammatory component to this, is being reversed by the steroids. More and more of these patients with glioblastoma are receiving bevacizumab or Avastin at some point in the natural course of their disease. And again, very early data suggest that bevacizumab might have the exact opposite effect in the sense that it might actually stabilize the blood-brain barrier, and the vasculature, and potentially could reduce pseudoprogression. Every time I hear about it, I get kind of nervous, and it's a really vexing issue clinically. What about from a research perspective? Do you think that in some way this might have contaminated some of the trials that we're seeing? Absolutely. The fear is that one could take a patient that genuinely has pseudoprogression, label them as having progression, put them on a trial of an ineffective agent, and as the natural history of pseudoprogression is such that the patient improves, we would be convinced that an ineffective agent is in fact having therapeutic benefit in such a patient. So there is concern that not making a clear distinction between pseudoprogression and progression could result in a subsequent agent that's ineffective being labeled effective. 
You mentioned brachytherapy and another local treatment modality that's been around for a while is gliadel wafer. Can you explain what that is, where we are with that, and if there are any other similar agents that are being developed or looked at? So the gliadel wafer, in fact, contains a chemotherapeutic agent that's been used in malignant gliomas for a very long time. It's an alkylating agent, BCNU. So the nitrosoureas have a long history of use in malignant gliomas. The real issue in brain tumors is really the blood-brain barrier. Systemic delivery of chemotherapy, unfortunately, is limited by a number of issues in the brain, the blood-brain barrier being just one of them. We know that in malignant gliomas, the blood-brain barrier is disrupted. We know that it's abnormal. But in spite of a disrupted and abnormal blood barrier, we know that not enough chemotherapy gets in. So the idea behind the gliadel wafers was to develop a delivery system, a polymer-based delivery system, where the chemotherapy could be embedded into the polymer and the polymer could be directly deposited in the surgical cavity. It's clearly an elegant concept in the sense that you're taking the chemotherapy, embedding it into the tumor bed, and allowing it to permeate in and around the tumor bed to kill off tumor cells in the vicinity of the surgical cavity. As elegant as the technology is, it has some limitations. The volume of distribution of drug from any wafer-like system is limited. We know that the tumor cells can migrate several millimeters, several centimeters beyond the surgical excision and the surgical cavity. And it's unclear that sufficiently large doses of chemotherapy actually permeate that large of a distance, even from the wafers that are placed in the surgical cavity. So although it's an elegant concept, it has limitations in terms of the amount of permeability of drug beyond the surgical cavity. Let's talk about your 36-year-old man. Sure. So this second patient is very intriguing because he illustrates the opposite of pseudoprogression. This is a young man who initially presented with a partial complex seizure, and at an emergency room visit when they performed an MRI scan, they found a bifrontal, non-enhancing, butterfly-shaped lesion, which for all the world looked like a possible low-grade glial neoplasm. He had a unilateral craniotomy and a subtotal resection of this non-enhancing tumor, which in fact revealed a grade 2 astrocytoma. We didn't know this at the time of original diagnosis, but upon subsequent retesting his tissue, it turned out that his tumor was also methylated for MGMT. So he had the MGMT methylation signature. That's not commonly done with grade 2 astrocytomas. We did this subsequently in the natural history of this patient's disease, and it turned out that he had a methylated tumor. He was initially treated with upfront chemotherapy. And the rationale for this was that this was a very functional young man who wanted to maintain a high quality of life. His wife had just been found to be pregnant at the time that he had been diagnosed with a tumor, and he really wanted to focus on quality of life and did not want to spend a lot of time coming in for radiotherapy every day for a six- to seven-week period of time. So he was placed on oral chemotherapy on timazolomide, which he in fact received for 14 months, and his disease stabilized. He did not have a significant response, but he did not have any progression either. After 14 months of timazolomide, his timazolomide was discontinued, and four months later, he had progressive disease. The progressive disease was still non-enhancing, so there was no enhancing component to this tumor, most consistent with the low-grade glioma continuing to progress. At that time, he was treated with definitive radiotherapy, a six-week course of radiotherapy, and he did well immediately in the post-radiation context. But within two months, he also exhibited pseudoprogression. 
the non-enhancing tumor turned into a large enhancing cavitary mass, but this time, given the fact that we had a non-enhancing tumor that showed enhancing characteristics, we were convinced that we were looking at pseudoprogression, and we simply waited it out with time, and his images got better. He did well for a considerable period of time. He went on for a total of six years, after which he re-exhibited this pattern of enhancement in his tumor. And we were concerned whether this was some delayed manifestation of pseudoprogression. And so we took him to surgery, and he was operated on. Unfortunately, instead of pseudoprogression, we found at this time that he had undergone malignant transformation from a grade 2 glioma into a grade 4 glioblastoma at this point. This tumor was aggressively resected. In fact, in spite of the fact that it was a bifrontal glioblastoma crossing the corpus callosum, because his corpus callosum had already been destroyed by the tumor and the patient wanted to opt for aggressive surgery, he had a gross total resection. This is not something that would be commonly done for a tumor crossing the corpus callosum, but in his case was successfully achieved. Thereafter, he was started on bevacizumab or Avastin as salvage therapy. The bevacizumab, in fact, held his tumor at bay for several months. But what was intriguing with his scan was this concept of pseudo-response. The enhancing component of his tumor did not show any progression. In fact, all the enhancements subsequently disappeared. However, the other MR sequences, especially the flare MR sequences, continued to show progressive changes with time, including distant changes, changes at a significant distance away from the original tumor bed and the original resection site. This is something that a number of investigators are beginning to describe, that when we treat patients with bevacizumab, the enhancing component often disappears, but underneath this, the tumor might continue to progress, and this phenomenon is sometimes referred to as pseudo-response. In association with pseudo-response, in some patients, what we are beginning to see is a pattern of failure where the tumor is relapsing not just locally, but also several centimeters away, and sometimes in multiple different sites almost in a pattern reminiscent of gliomatosis cerebri. So we see distant, multiple focal sites of disease in a patient that starts off with a tumor that's localized in one region. Unfortunately, in this patient's case, that's exactly what we saw after several months of bevacizumab therapy. And unfortunately, he had this multifocal relapse, which was still non-enhancing. We knew, however, that this probably most likely represented grade 4 glioma. We switched his therapy to add CPT-11, which is a chemotherapy drug that has been used with bevacizumab. Unfortunately, he did not respond to the addition of CPT-11 to bevacizumab. And the literature suggests that there is, in fact, not much in terms of response after progression on bevacizumab. And unfortunately, we found the same clinical experience with this patient. He is currently on hospice care. Any thoughts about what's going on when you give bevacizumab, both in terms of the tumor, edema, vasculature, and also what's going on in terms of, I keep hearing this, although I don't know if there's a lot of data about what happens when these people progress. I think there are probably three things that happen. The first and immediate and very, very quick thing that we see is stabilization of the blood-brain barrier. And as a consequence, the enhancement goes away, the edema swelling decreases, and the patient starts to feel better. So we see a clinical response where the performance status improves, the need for steroids declines, and patients feel better. We all know of patients that have had significant deterioration in their clinical condition, receive their first dose of bevacizumab, and become substantially more functional than they were just the week before. Unfortunately, in many of these patients, 
after a period of time, sometimes within a few weeks of bevacizumab, sometimes within several weeks of bevacizumab, what we see is creeping progression of disease, which is not necessarily enhancing, but non-enhancing disease that's progressing. Some people have used the phrase, the phrase co-option, and the implication here is that traditionally we believe that glioblastoma requires neoangiogenesis, the creation of new vasculature in order to grow. Bevacizumab being an anti-angiogenic agent prohibits the development of new blood vessels and therefore neoangiogenesis cannot occur. Tumor cells therefore migrate along the vasculature that is pre-existing in the brain. Rather than creating new vasculature, they track along the existing vasculature and co-opt the existing vasculature, hence the phrase co-option, and tumor cells are probably migrating along existing vascular structures, therefore the multiple recurrent situation that we see in these patients. I'm curious, do you think that bevacizumab is altering the natural history of the disease? It obviously is. We know, for example, that in patients with recurrent glioblastoma, the outcome is very poor. And historically, we've had very few therapeutic agents that have improved quality of life, improved the functional status, prolonged progression-free survival, produced robust radiographic responses. The advent of bevacizumab has done all of that. So clearly, we have seen a clinical benefit, and it's more than simply stabilizing the blood-brain barrier. There is, in fact, some tumor regression that we see early on. The concern, of course, is what happens in the longer run. Are we allowing this tumor to find other mechanisms of growth? Because of the fact that the anti-angiogenic switch prevents the tumor from developing new angiogenesis doesn't imply that the tumor gives up growing because tumor stem cells may continue to survive and they may find alternative mechanisms of survival and growth. So I think the challenge for us going forward is to find agents to combine with bevacizumab that prevent this infiltrative invasive property of glioblastoma, perhaps matrix metalloproteinase inhibitors or other agents that prevent such behavior might be good combinations with bevacizumab. Let's talk a little bit about brain metastasis. Anything new there that docs in practice should know about? There are a number of recent papers that I think are worth considering. I will perhaps start off by mentioning an intriguing paper from the MD Anderson Cancer Institute by Eric Chang and his colleagues. This was a small randomized trial in patients with brain metastasis who were randomized to receiving radiosurgery for their brain metastasis with or without whole brain radiotherapy. In the past, a number of trials have been done of whole brain radiotherapy with or without radiosurgery. Here, the paradigm was flipped. Patients received radiosurgery with or without whole brain radiotherapy. And the question was whether the omission of whole brain radiotherapy would result in any significant change in the endpoints that were being measured. Not surprisingly, what the authors found was that the risk of intracranial relapse was significantly greater in the arm without the whole brain radiotherapy, as you would anticipate. But intriguingly, one of the endpoints they measured was an endpoint that looked at memory using the Hopkins verbal learning test. And when they measured this at four months, what they found was that the patients receiving whole brain radiotherapy had a statistically greater likelihood of declining on their Hopkins verbal learning test compared to the patients who did not receive whole brain radiotherapy, implying that whole brain radiotherapy has two effects in these patients. One, it diminishes the likelihood of further intracranial relapse, but two, it results in early decline in short-term memory. Now, the reason this is intriguing is historically we have believed that the effects of whole brain radiotherapy are long-term. 
they're delayed. They show up many, many months later, maybe 12 months, 24 months down the road, and therefore we don't have to worry about cognition and memory early on. But this study showed as early as four months that there was a decline on the HVLT test that they were measuring. Getting back to radio surgery, how do you utilize it in terms of brain metastasis, and what do you think is going on in the community, both in terms of selection of patients and quality of the treatments? This is, I think, a very important question because it has several practice ramifications. Let's first start by looking at what we know in terms of evidence. So if we ask the question from a very simple perspective, and the perspective is survival, does the use of radiosurgery increase or improve survival in any group of patients with brain metastasis? And the answer, in fact, is yes, it does. We know categorically with good evidence that in patients with a single brain metastasis, the addition of a radiosurgery boost to whole brain radiotherapy improves survival. So we have good data for this, and I think one would be on solid ground to include radiosurgery in this group of patients. We have suggestive data, not quite level one evidence, that in selected subsets of patients with more than one brain metastasis, perhaps patients that have good performance status, patients with three or fewer brain metastases, patients with non-small cell lung cancer as a primary tumor, that the addition of radiosurgery to whole brain radiotherapy might prolong survival. Now, that's as far as the survival question is concerned. But we know that in many patients with brain metastasis, we have two competing issues. We have the intracranial disease. We also have the extracranial disease. And obviously, loss of control of extracranial disease is often responsible for mortality in these patients. So its survival cannot be the only and absolute endpoint in these patients. If we look at local tumor control, the ability to stop the tumor from growing, do we have data that suggests that patients with more than one, two, or three metastases benefit from improved intracranial control? We don't have very large clinical trials, but we do have large experiences from institutions that have treated patients with multiple brain metastases. And the suggestion here is indeed patients with multiple brain metastases. Some reports would suggest anywhere from 4 to 10 brain metastases might benefit in terms of improved local control. But obviously these data are much softer because they don't come from randomized clinical trials. So if the intent for treating a patient in a setting, whether it's community or academic setting, is to improve survival, then one has to be very selective regarding the type of patient. But if the intent is improvement in local control, the selection criteria can become somewhat broader. The second aspect of radiosurgery practice that is evolving rapidly is whether to do radiosurgery alone or whether to add or omit whole brain radiotherapy. The debate here, of course, focuses not so much on the recognition that omission of whole brain radiotherapy will increase the odds of relapse in the brain, but on the concern that the addition of whole brain radiotherapy could produce cognitive deficits in patients. Most of the data suggests that withholding whole brain radiotherapy has two effects. It decreases the consequences that would be associated with whole brain radiotherapy because the patient didn't receive whole brain radiotherapy. And it increases the likelihood of developing intracranial relapse. There is a price to be paid for intracranial relapse. And in many of these studies, the price is neurocognitive decline. So where is the balance? Can we skip the whole brain radiation and afford to have neurocognitive decline as a consequence of increased intracranial failure? And we don't honestly know the complete and full answer to this. The MD Anderson trial would suggest 
that even though the risk of developing brain metastasis is increased by omitting whole brain radiotherapy, the risk of neurocognitive decline, at least at the four-month time point with this one test, the Hopkins Verbal Learning Test, is greater in patients receiving whole brain radiotherapy. Fortunately, there's a larger clinical trial ongoing right now. A European trial was just completed, and a North American trial is underway, which is trying to prospectively answer this question with a bigger set of patients to determine what, if anything, happens if whole brain radiotherapy is withheld. Are there factors that increase the risk of neurocognitive decline, such as age? Yes, very much so. So if we look at traditional variables that physicians take into consideration, there would be things like age, pre-existing neurocognitive deficits. So if patients have significant history of, for example, multiple strokes in the brain, where you know their vasculature has been compromised, they might possibly be at greater risk. There is a hypothesis in general circulation that patients with severe diabetes might be at greater risk, although the data for this are rather soft. And then there are a host of very uncommon conditions that render patients significantly more radiosensitive because of genetic disorders. These are extremely uncommon, and these patients could be at higher risk. But generally, greater age and prior insult to the brain, whether it's multiple strokes or whatever else, is perhaps the most common reason for being concerned that this could be the patient where neurocognitive decline is more likely. However, what we are beginning to study now is are there perhaps molecular predictors that might tell us which patients are more likely to develop radiation-induced dementia or radiation-induced neurocognitive deficits. We don't quite have the answer, but these studies are ongoing. And there are also pharmacological intervention studies ongoing where drugs are being used, especially coming out of the Alzheimer's literature, to try and see if these can reverse or protect against the side effects of whole brain radiotherapy. Sometimes it's hard to interpret studies which use criteria or tests that, you know, it's hard to kind of match it up to what you observe clinically. If you have a patient who is, let's say, in their early 60s, no comorbidities whatsoever, they're considering whole brain radiation, and they say to you, what's the chance that I'm going to have some kind of neurocognitive problem you know, that I'll notice? It's, you know, maybe going to be somewhat of a nuisance. What's the chance I'm going to have a really major problem that's really going to bother me? What's the chance that I won't have any of this? So I think answering the major problem question is perhaps a little bit easier. The paper that probably addressed this first and is most widely quoted is a paper by Lisa DeAngelis from Memorial Stone Kettering. And what Lisa and her colleagues had observed in this paper that's now several years old was a cohort of patients that had become long-term survivors after cranial radiation. And they looked at the incidence of severe neurocognitive memory decline in these patients. And the incidence is approximately 11 to 12% in this group of patients. It turns out that the vast majority of these patients that experienced neurocognitive decline had what we call hypofractionated radiotherapy, large fractions of radiation, few fractions of radiation given over a short period of time to the whole brain. So clearly, we need to recognize that this could be an etiologic factor that if the radiation is given in a few fractions with large doses per fraction to the whole brain, this could perhaps cause a significant level of risk for neurocognitive decline. In Lisa's paper, when they looked at the patients that were treated standard fractionated radiotherapy, the incidence of severe neurocognitive decline was in fact very low. So if a 60-year-old were to come to me and ask me this question, it would be easy for me to tell them that in the absence of other risk factors, the likelihood of severe neurocognitive decline is low. How low? 
probably in single digits, significantly below 5%, probably in the 1% to 3% range. What's perhaps more difficult to measure and capture in terms of a statistical figure is the risk of moderate toxicity. The patient says, what's my likelihood that I'll have some deficits in my memory? Now, the reason this is very difficult is because obviously memory is affected by a host of variables, some therapeutic and many not therapeutic. The presence of disease can affect a person's cognition. The presence of a change in lifestyle, coming to see the doctors much more frequently, losing your job, changing your role in the home from being the primary income earner to someone who's now being supported by family members because you now have a diagnosis of cancer. All of this can have an impact on cognition and memory. People change their routines. People that are working get up at a specific time, go to work, they look at the calendar, they know their dates. When they have cancer, they stop doing things of this sort. They're often at home, not necessarily looking at the calendar on a regular basis. In the absence of anything else, this alone can induce modest degrees of cognitive change. So measuring the impact of one single variable on modest changes in cognition is indeed very difficult. That doesn't mean it hasn't been done. This has been attempted in a number of studies. There have been randomized studies where people have looked at cognitive changes over a period of time. And there is little doubt that when we do this and we do baseline analysis, patients before they are treated, if they have brain metastasis, have very high risk in terms of neurocognitive deficits. Depending on the domain that is tested, the risk may be anywhere from 40 to 90% of patients that are impaired in that particular domain. Now, if one does not obtain such baseline assessment because it is mild to modest and it's not obviously clinically visible, but one does a test of this nature six months or 12 months after therapy and picks it up, one might simply be picking a pre-existing mild to moderate neurologic deficits and then labeling it as therapy-associated. So this is a very difficult question to answer in terms of a specific number. Any new research approaches with radiation therapy you might want to comment on? One example is the current interest in PARP inhibitors. PARP inhibitors have shown a lot of promise not just as sensitizers of chemotherapy, but also as sensitizers of radiation by not allowing the tumor to repair the radiation-induced damage by inhibiting PARP, which is an enzyme that's crucial for base excision repair following exposure of any DNA-damaging agent. And especially in the world of breast cancer, PARP inhibitors have recently been in the news quite a bit because subgroups of patients with breast cancer may be very sensitive to therapeutic effect from PARP inhibitors. So a combination study with radiation, whole brain radiation, and a PARP inhibitor is underway right now. A study of this nature would be an example of the kind of study that would be available primarily in an academic setting, but not necessarily in a community setting. That would be the one distinction. Yeah, that idea of a PARP inhibitor radiation therapy makes total sense. Is there anything that we know at all right now clinically about that? Which agents are being studied, or do we even know whether they're well tolerated with radiation? So we do know that preclinically, a number of laboratories have tested the so-called radiosensitizing capability of PARP inhibitors, and it's quite dramatic. These agents clearly cause additive and synergistic effect above and beyond that of radiation therapy alone in a variety of different model systems, breast, non-breast, glial, metastatic, brain, non-brain, a variety of different models. Clinically, specifically in terms of the brain, there are in fact a couple of studies that are looking at PARP inhibitors and combination. 
There is a study that is sponsored by a pharmaceutical company that has a PARP inhibitor. It's the drug known as ABT888, which is currently with Abbott in the Abbott portfolio. They are running a multi-institutional clinical trial in patients with brain metastasis with whole brain radiation and the agent. It is a phase one study, so it is a dose-seeking study. So clearly, the study is preliminary and early in terms of seeking the appropriate dose with radiation therapy. The same agent is also being tested by the American Brain Tumor Consortium together with radiation and timozolomide in patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma. So the PARP inhibitor plus radiation and timozolomide is the ABTC trial ongoing right now. It is also in the phase one component right now. So these are early days for PARP inhibitors. The idea makes a lot of sense, as you said. There could potentially be quite a bit of promise based on what we are seeing preclinically, but right now we are still at the phase one portion of the game. I know there are a lot of PARP inhibitors, but the other two that we're starting to hear some things about are Olaparib and BSI-201. Are those two agents being looked at with radiation therapy? They certainly have been looked at preclinically, and preclinically they also look quite promising. I'm not aware of specific clinical trials in metastases or gliomas with these agents at this point. I do know that most PARP inhibitors will be tested in this context. The studies are in early phases of development at this point. But another intriguing concept that I think is worth bringing out at this point is the recognition that PARP inhibitors might particularly be good for timozolomide as well. We know, for example, that in glioblastoma, if the MGMT gene is methylated, timozolomide is going to be more active. But we also know that what MGMT repairs is methylation at one specific position in the DNA sequence. And methylation at that sequence occurs only 6% of the time. 94% of the time, the methylating effect of timozolomide is occurring elsewhere. Which means that if we are seeing all the benefit from MGMT inhibition, where is 94% of the effect going? It's being repaired by the tumor cell. And the bulk of this is being repaired by the base excision repair pathway. If that can be inhibited, the efficacy of timozolomide could theoretically be substantially improved. So combinations of timozolomide and a PARP inhibitor, and then logically combinations of a PARP inhibitor, timozolomide, and radiation might be very intriguing, especially in diseases such as melanoma and other diseases where our outcomes are currently so poor.